Pastor Sam said, I too love the Christmas season. And I remember uh, back when I was 19 years old, I had my first Christmas apart from my family. And uh, my family was teachers over in Ukraine, and I was with them at the time. And I know I've told many stories of Ukraine, but this was one of those stories where my family had uh, the ability to go back home for Christmas. Uh, but because I was now an adult, according to my parents, whatever that means... <laughs> I had to pay my own ticket if I wanted to go home for Christmas. They wouldn't pay for me anymore because I was an adult. Ugh. And so I had to stay there for Christmas, which was fine because Julie was there, my now wife. And But I remember uh, Christmas Day. They don't celebrate Christmas Day the way we celebrate Christmas Day. And I remember waking up on Christmas and being like, it's Christmas. And I went outside and sort of was expecting this magical feeling of what Christmas would be like. Uh, but I recognized that everybody was just going about their day. Nobody knew, nobody cared that it was Christmas because culturally speaking, it wasn't a very relevant holiday. They celebrate New Year's as, and, and they're more, they celebrate more of an Orthodox Christmas on January 7th, I believe. I could be wrong on that date. Um, but December 25th, I felt so alone. I felt like nobody cared. I wanted to scream out, don't you care? Today's Christmas. And I talked to my parents on the phone. They were celebrating. You could hear people in the background, family eating, talking, sharing. And I, and I realized in that moment, I never wanted to take uh, Christmas for granted again. But what I recognized also in that moment is that I had come to put the Christmas season as more important than the Christmas story. That I recognized what I missed more was the music and the gifts and the food more than the story of Christmas itself. And as we all know, Christmas for our culture is an all-important festival of consumption. We consume a lot, don't we? during the Christmas season. I'm not just talking about food. I mean, we consume a lot of food too, but we just consume. Did you know that between the weeks of Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, and Christmas, the four weeks, that 40% of all retail goods sold in the United States happens in those four weeks? Almost half of all retail goods, and we're talking about America, which is, consumes up to about 70% of the world's resources when it comes to retail, 40% happens in those four weeks. You know, Christmas is a season that serves an economic purpose. It also serves um, uh, our modern cultural presuppositions. Like I said, we love the songs, I mean, how many of you, when you heard, oh, come all ye faithful, you're like, yes, it's Christmas. I was like that. You know, we love the decorations. Don't they look amazing? You know, we got to decorate this week, and we put on Christmas music. Pastor Karen bought us an advent calendar filled with chocolate. I was like, oh, they just touched my heart. We love the decorations. We love the food. We love the time off, somebody. We love the gifts, and we even love the church services. And in many ways, the nativity scene that's represented there behind us, that image, that scene in our culture, which represents the Christmas story, has been come blended together with all the other fairy tales of the Christmas uh, season, alongside Santa and his elves, Frosty and Elf on the Shelf. Now, in no way am I making an argument against the Christmas season. I mean, as you can tell, I love the Christmas season. In fact, I've watched all four of the Home Alone movies. And you're thinking to yourself, four? I thought there was only two. No, there's four. And I've watched them all, so you don't have to. Don't bother. 
But what I want to, us to be reminded of this Christmas season is the Christmas story. I want us to draw in to the Christmas story, specifically the stories we see in Matthew and Luke's gospel. And I think how we remember the Christmas story is by remembering that the Christmas story, unlike the Christmas season, happened in a historical context. It happened in a historical setting, meaning it happened to a certain people during a certain time in a certain place. It's very easy for us among the Christmas season to forget the historical context in which the Christmas story happens. You see, in the Christmas season, we usher in the, the season with anticipation, with hope, with joy. Last night, we went to see a live nativity scene out uh, near Carlton Place, and it was wonderful. My kids on the way home said, I can't wait for Christmas, because they just loved everything about it. But the Christmas story in its historical setting was not a time of great happiness and joy, but was a time of great fear. The people that Jesus came to were a people who were greatly afraid. And they had great reason to be afraid. The good news that would cause great joy were to a people who had been beaten down by the occupation of an imperial army, the, the army of Rome. You know, when we read about the census that Caesar called, you know, the, in, in, in uh, Luke's gospel, we hear about a census is called, and, and Mary and Joseph are called to report to Bethlehem. And sometimes I think we, we see this as a convenient plot twist in the story, because we got to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem somehow, right, in order to fulfill the biblical prophecy. So how convenient is it that at that time there's a census, but the census is not like our Canadian census, where you get the piece of paper and you fill it out and off it goes. And the census was a, rec was a, a representation of the, the oppressive, burdened uh, tax system that just burdened the people. So by going to Bethlehem, they were going essentially to pay taxes. That it was just another sign, another symbol of how oppressed of a people they were. Another question we need to ask of the Christmas story is, why was Joseph having to go to Bethlehem in the first place? I think sometimes we wonder, you know, why to go to Bethlehem? When the question we need to be asked was, why wasn't Joseph in Bethlehem in the first place? I mean, Bethlehem was his hometown. That's where he was born. It was not common for anyone to leave their hometown in that time. So why was Joseph not in Bethlehem? Why did he need to go to Bethlehem? And the answer is, is that Joseph, like many others, were displaced from their homes because of their inability to find work, because of the oppression of the Romans. They were scattered, they were dispersed, and they were, had to go elsewhere. And this is the setting in which the Christmas story happens. Like Isaiah prophesied, Jesus came as a light to a people living in deep darkness. Sometimes, though, I think we spiritualize that metaphor too much. We, 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 we figuratize or, or spiritualize this idea of living in deep darkness when, when really in reality, the, light, the time that Jesus came to, to the people living in deep darkness, life was dark. It was difficult. And the people had very little reason to be filled with hope peace, love, and joy like we are this Christmas season. But it was in that darkest moment that God stepped down from heaven, that he was made in human likeness, fully God yet fully man, and he dwelt among his people. And we call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So today, here's what I want us to remember about the Christmas story. That while God with us does not mean that you and I, we won't go through dark valleys. But rather, when we do go through dark valleys, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can and we should fear no evil whether that's personally or corporately. Why do we have no reason to be afraid? The answer is because God is with me. God is with us. And this is the Christmas story, that because God is with me, I can fear not. I can fear not. Did how many of you would admit today that there are times when fear has played a a far greater role in your story than you'd like to admit? I'm not talking about a fear of spiders. Or like Pastor Sam admitted to us weeks ago, a fear of heights. I'm not talking about an emotional sort of fear that can sometimes be healthy and even God-given. I'm talking about the sort of fear that can overpower reason. You know, a fear that can rule you in very unhealthy and ungodlike ways. Not a fear that serves you, but a fear that you serve. You serve it. Fear that guides you into making decisions or acting in a certain way that can be detrimental to yourself or others. You know, when I look upon the book of Genesis and the very opening chapters, I don't consider it a coincidence that the very first time man and woman felt fear, that it coincided with them sinning against God. That when they sinned against God, that when they took the, the fruit of the one tree that God forbidden of them to eat, that the very first emotion, the very first thing that they felt was not regret. It was not sorrow. It was fear. Genesis 3, 8 to 10 tells us that then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. See, it is part of our human nature, and when I say human nature, I mean our, our fallen, sinful nature to be prone to this sort of fear. And perhaps your fear is a fear of being unloved. Maybe your fear is a fear of being felt worthless. Maybe it's seen as being incompetent or being helpless. Maybe your fear today is that you have a fear of being controlled or manipulated. Maybe your fear today is doing the wrong thing. But whatever it is, we all have something deep down that we fear within us. And it is important today that as the people of God, the people who were created to fear not, as we will see as the Christmas message and the Christmas story, we need to recognize the difference when fear is serving you and you are serving your fear. That when fear begins to guide your decisions, your thoughts, your behaviors in ways that are contrary to God's ways, well, that fear is more than just your guide. That fear has become your God. And you are either ignoring or disobeying the command that God has given us in his word over and over and over again. And that command is what? Fear not. Don't be afraid. See, in the Christmas story, there's one person in particular who is symbolic of this idolatrous and dangerous fear. And his name is Herod. Now, we, we encounter King Herod in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 2. And remember, the Christmas story, this is not a fairy tale. Herod's not a fictitious character that is designed to sort of be the bad guy, you know, the, anti- the, the, uh, the bad guy to, to baby Jesus. No, he is a historical person. And if you've read anything at all about Herod's life, and you can find important information about Herod's life, his historical details, 
outside of the Bible, well, you will know that you don't want to be anywhere near this guy. He is a bad, bad dude. Herod was made king of the Jews by Rome and was able to conquer Jerusalem with the help of Roman legions. The very first thing that he did when he became king was he gave himself the title, the King of the Jews. How many of you have heard that title somewhere else? And we're going to hear that in a moment. In a moment. You know, Herod claimed to be a king who would bring to the people, to the Jews, a long-awaited peace and prosperity. But instead of bringing peace, what he brought was the very paradigm of tyranny. You know, he, we know that he put the people under severe oppression through these lavish building projects that he would build. And these lavish building projects were all done in homage to Caesar. But all that these projects did was put the people under even more the tremendous burden of taxes and economic poverty. We see the people, were, 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 their religious traditions were flouted and blasphemed by Herod. We know Herod rebuilt the temple bigger and greater than Solomon's temple, but it was used as a, as a way of blaspheming God, as flouting their traditions against them. I think most of all, Herod was ruthlessly paranoid. Ruthlessly. You did not want to be part of his family because he is known for slaughtering his family members, including his two eldest sons, his sister, his wife, his next wife, and his mother-in-law. And so when Matthew shares the account of Jesus in Matthew 2 being born, the birth of Jesus, he does so intentionally by pitting this baby born in Bethlehem against this paranoid maniac king. We see this paranoid maniac king being pitted against the one who is about to be born, known as the Prince of Peace. In Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 3, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod, there it is, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. To the one given the title, king of the Jews, the wise men asked, where might we find this child? Where might we find this one born king of the Jews? Now it's not hard for you and I to imagine how Herod might choose to vent his rage in a moment like this, learning that a child had been born who might stand in direct opposition to his throne. Herod was afraid jealously afraid, and he was troubled, meaning, if to use the, the Terry translation, he was freaking out, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, know that, that that's not the people, that's all Jerusalem represents the religious elites that Herod had appointed, that were also part of this oppressive system. All those at the very top of the food chain, hearing the news that a child had been born king of the Jews, recognized that their power and their control and their authority was about to be challenged, and something inside them was unseated, and they were afraid. They were troubled. And so Herod does the unthinkable, as we know. Or we, maybe we don't know. And he orders the massacre of every boy in around Bethlehem under the age of two. Orders their death. And this, this story, which is one of the more least represented parts of the Christmas story for reasons, as I just read, is not very nice to read. It's very symbolic of what happened in the book of Exodus, of what Pharaoh did to every boy born during the days when, of Moses. But Herod... Here's what I believe today. Well, Herod in his fear is not the only one who has ever been troubled by the advent of Christ. That Herod 
is merely symbolic of every person who has ever lived that has had the nerve to stand in, in front and against the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Herod is more than a king who saw Jesus as a threat to his power. He is a representation of the fearlessness of God that is so prevalent in our age and our day. Not only are we whole humans prone to fear, we are also prone to a certain fearlessness of God and his ways. You see, just as Adam and Eve felt fear towards God for their act of disobedience, what caused that act of disobedience in the first place? What prompted them to take the one thing, the one fruit that God commanded them, don't take anything from this one tree of good, the knowledge of good and evil, what prompted them to do that? And it was fearlessness. It was a fearlessness towards God, a fearlessness towards God and his commands. And with the serpents prompting that day and that moment forevermore, a fearlessness of God and his commands was born in the hearts of every humankind. And that includes you, and that includes me. And here's the irony, that the less we fear God, the more afraid we become. The less afraid we are of God and his commands, the more we are afraid. Have you noticed that? That the less our culture fears God, that the less others fear God, the more fear they have for everything else. Whether it's a fear of death. I mean, something was unseated in this pandemic, I think. A fear of death. A fear of mortality. I think that if I didn't have a fear in God, if I didn't believe that beyond this life there is a life to come, I would put myself in the hole and I would wait this out because this is all the only life that I get. I would be deeply afraid. A fear of death because if I have faith, if I don't have faith in anything beyond this life, the only thing I have that I believe in is this life and when I die, that's it, that's over. Of course I would be deeply afraid. The more fear that I have, maybe it's a fear of losing control. Maybe it's the fear of the future. You're deeply afraid of what lies before you. Maybe it's not what's before you, but what's behind you that makes you afraid. Maybe you have a fear of the past, of what's in the past, of the past catching up to you, or of you regressing back into the past. Whatever it is, the less you and I fear God, the more afraid we become. The farther we get from God, the closer our fears become to us. I really believe that today. Yet, can anyone here tell me what the primary announcement of God is to all people in the Christmas story? Does anyone know? It is fear not. Don't be afraid. As Herod nears the news of the birth of a new king, he gathers the experts of the law together and he says, would you tell me where the birth of this child may be? And he inquires, and what they tell him, these experts of the law, is they quote to him from the prophet Micah in Matthew chapter 2.6. And it says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Just from Bethlehem will come a ruler who will do what? He will lead his people. 
He will lead his people like a shepherd leads his sheep out of a land filled with deep darkness, and he will call them, and he will lead them into God's great light. He will lead them away from their fears and will call them to fear not. See, it's not that Herod was the only person in the Christmas story who was deeply afraid. In fact, everyone in the Christmas story was afraid. Mary was afraid. Joseph was afraid. The shepherds were afraid. Yet, when you read the story, there's only one group of people who over and over again are told, you can fear not. And it was those who, unlike Herod, feared in God. Mary was told not to be afraid. Why? Well, Mary, you found favor with God. You will bear a son, the son of God, and you will call him, his name shall be called Jesus. And because Mary feared God, she answered the angel, Behold, I am a servant of God. Let it be to me according to your word. Joseph was afraid. Yet what did the angel say to him? Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. I know what's happened is, un- is not normal. <laughs> I know it's not convenient. It's not, I know it's not what a, a new groom, a new husband sort of desires to start out his life. But don't be afraid to take her to be your wife. For the child she has conceived, that is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph feared God, what did Joseph do? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. Are you seeing a theme here? That those who fear God have nothing to be afraid of. That the less we fear God, the more afraid we become. But the more and more we fear God the more reason we have to fear not. Luke chapter 150, this is Mary's words. That's where she is told that she would conceive this, this child born of the Holy Spirit and his name shall be called Jesus. What did she do? She began to sing. She sang a song in the spirit of Hannah who also sung to the Lord when Eli told her that she would bear a son. She sang a song like Deborah sang in the Old Testament as the people of God, the people of Israel were brought across the Red Sea. She sang a song of victory. Here's what Mary sings quoting Psalm 103. She sings, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Psalm 34, 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Proverbs 9, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What wisdom and knowledge does the fear of the Lord bring us? That you don't need to be afraid or be ruled by fear. Why? Because God is with you. And for those who put their trust in him and follow his commands, he will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will protect you. And that is what it means to fear God. I've heard that question over and over again. What does it mean to fear God? And I've heard a whole wide variety of answers. I've heard on one side that it means just have a deep respect and reverence for God. I think that in one sense that's, that's true, that we need to have a deep awe and respect for God. And then I've heard on the other side people being like, no, to fear God is to be like afraid. Like you read about the prophets and Ezekiel and Isaiah, when they encounter the holiness of God, they had a fear in God, didn't they? It was a fear in God that put them on their face and be like, woe is me, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. 
It was fear. And I think also, in the same sense, it is also true as we have to have deep respect and awe of God. And I think it's also good for us to have a healthy fear, knowing that if God's presence were to come completely and fully in this place, we would all be on our faces, be like, woe is me. You know, my sin is so great. Oh God, I'm so sorry. There would be tremendous fear. But what I think fear means, you know, including all of that, is what to fear in God means is to obey God and to do what God has commanded us to do. That is what it means to fear God. Here's what John Bevere says. He says, to fear the Lord means to love God so much we are afraid to be away from him. We love him and value his presence above all. And out of reverence for him, we choose to love what he loves and hate what he hates. In the end, the fear of the Lord can be identified by one simple thing, obedience. Obedience. To obey God, even when it doesn't make sense, if it hurts, or if you don't see the benefits. We obey God. That is what it means to fear in God. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, these are the words of Solomon. You know that Solomon had everything, had everything a man could ever want. Yet he says this at the end of the book of of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter. What is it? You know what? The end of your life, your famous last words, what would you want to pass on to the next generation, to your family? Here's Solomon, what he says. Here's what it all comes down to. Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of it all. Fear God and keep his commands. And this is not just the story of, of all of the Bible. This is the story of Christmas. This is why Jesus came. To lead those who are living in deep darkness, who are living in, in deep fear, guided by an unholy fear, whether that was Herod or the shepherds, they were deeply afraid, and this fear was ultimately rooted in a fearlessness towards God and his commands. But Jesus came in a time of deep darkness so that he could lead us, guided not by an unholy fear, but could guide us by calling us to put our fear in God and God alone. And that is a fear that is rooted in God's perfect love. What does First John say about such perfect love? That there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all what? Fear. See, the opposite of fear, you know, is not courage. Right? Courage is good. But courage is knowing that with the right thing to do, stepping into it, even though you are afraid. They say that the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. And in the same breath, the opposite of fear is not courage, it's love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so I don't know what this all means for you today. Perhaps you would agree or disagree that you have been hided, guided by an unhealthy fear. That you have been ruled by fear. That rather than fear serving you in a healthy and God-given way, that you have served fear in a way that is not healthy, in a way that is not God-given. Maybe today you resonate with the fearlessness of God that is so prevalent in our age and, and day. You know, why don't we fear God? Why does our culture not fear God? Yet ironically, the less we fear God, the more afraid our culture is. Maybe today you resonate uh, that, with all, that Herod is not the only one who was enraged by Christ's authority. Maybe you resonate today with that your heart. That you are 
enraged by the thought that you are not fully in control, that another king has come to claim ultimate authority and kingship over your heart. You know, if that news, that announcement flares something up in your flesh, maybe you have a control issue today. Maybe there's a fearlessness of God that God has wanted to confront. I want to invite uh, Estrus and the team back to join me up here on stage. But as we see in the Christmas story, the king who was born in Bethlehem, the king who, who was a ruler, but he ruled like a shepherd, not as one who was ruled by fear, but instead he laid down his life for those that he loved. He was not a king like Herod who used his power to oppress or to injure his opponents. He was a king who was a defender of the defenseless, who uplifted the downtrodden, who brought mercy to those who are weak and justice to those who have been wronged. He is not a king who is ruled or rules by an unholy fear. Instead, he is a king who is always and forever guided by a right fear, a holy fear of obedience to his Father in heaven. And so as king today, God in Jesus Christ is calling you and I to fear not in the things of this world. To fear not what lays before you or what lays behind you. To fear not the enemy. To fear not when you go through difficult times, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. To fear nothing. To fear no evil. And because God is with you. And because God is with you, we can put our fear in God and God alone. To fully trust in his perfect love that casts out all fear. His perfect law that revives our soul. His perfect presence which leads us, guides us, and protects us. And even though today you and I, we would admit that we are 100% guilty of sin. We are without a doubt, we have sinned against God with a fearlessness of his holiness and his commands. Yet unlike standing guilty in front of a crooked king, you and I today, we stand before a crucified king, don't we? We stand before a crucified king who came to us as a humble servant, who knew no sin, no sin at all, was perfect, but yet he became sin so that we in return, the ones who had sinned and fallen short of God's glory, who were supposed to be cast away from God's presence, who were supposed to be left for eternity in deep darkness. He came so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he's only the righteous who can see the great light, isn't it? What guides you today? Is it an unholy fear or is it a holy fear? When there's understanding today that God is with us, it means I don't need to be afraid. It doesn't mean that I won't go through hard times, right? It doesn't mean that I won't face death. It doesn't mean that the challenges before me won't still be there. But it means I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about God being protected or provided for. He will protect and provide. It means that when, when those troubles come, I can be strong and courageous 
not because I am strong and courageous, but because God is with me. I can be courageous in spite of my circumstances. So this is why Jesus came. One of the many reasons I think he came to restore in you and I a fear in God. And if you and I fear God today, not only will his mercy follow you and I all the days of our life, but like the psalmist says, when we fear God, we lack nothing. We lack nothing. So I want to invite you right now just to stand to your feet. And we're going to pray. And I just want to invite you right now, if, however the Spirit is leading you today, however, and I pray that you would open your heart right now to hear God speaking. How do we hear God speak? Well, sometimes I think God nudges something in our hearts, something resonates, something sits in our stomach, something we can't shake. I think those are all ways of recognizing or being prompt, where the Spirit's prompting us to just pay attention to, to look, to behold. If there's anything today, just, I invite you right now just to bring it in surrender to Christ. Whether it is fear, that you have been, you have been serving fear in unhealthy ways. I just want to invite you right now just to lay those fears before God. Say, God, I am deeply afraid. But I want to follow your word that calls me to fear not. I don't want to be afraid. I don't need to be afraid. But God, I am deeply afraid. Maybe today you're on the other side of it, or maybe they're one and the same. But there's a fearlessness of God. You don't fear God. That's a hard thing to admit. It's a hard thing to come face to face with. But it's, it's rooted in a rebellion against God. But if you are rebelling against Him, if you don't fear Him today, I pray today you recognize that. And the beautiful thing is that God doesn't put the fear, He doesn't come just to kick the fear, you know, put the fear of God in us. He brings us His love and in return we fear not. today I want to invite us all just to put our fear in God today by trusting and obeying his word. That the word of God that he has called you to live by, that his plans to, to prosper you, to grow you, to lead you, guide you, it's all in his word. And I pray that we fear in the Lord today above all else. And I pray that our fearlessness of this world, the things of this world, would be rooted in a fear of God. That God is my provider, my protector. That his perfect love for me casts out all fear. Lord, I pray, if there's any fear in us all at all today, I pray that that perfect love of God would cast that out today. You've called us in your word to fear not. The Christmas story, you bring the message of do not be afraid, but it's the same message that you've brought over and over again throughout your entire word. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yet, God, we as humans, we are so prone to fear. And I think that prone, that sense of being prone to fear is rooted from a fearlessness of you. God, our hearts, our flesh, we are rebellious. Lord, we rebel against you. It is our fallen nature to want to rebel and to not be afraid. If 
you and your commands. But Jesus, you came to this earth. You came to this earth to call us to put our our faith, our trust, our love, and ultimately our fear back in God. And you modeled it. You redeemed what it means when we say our human nature. On one hand, we say our human nature is prone to fear. But on the other hand, Jesus, because of what you accomplished on the cross, when we talk about our human nature, we say our human nature is to fear not. Because our human nature is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We do not need to be afraid. What it means to be fully human is to live our lives without fear knowing that, God, you are our provider, our protector. That is what the original plan of it all was, our created design, and that is what you are leading us back to. Full trust, full surrender, perfect love. Lord, we, today we just heed the call to fear you and do all that you have commanded us to do. This is the end of it all. This is all that matters in this life. We ask you to help us and guide us our perfect guide, our perfect shepherd, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.